Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Hello, what the fuckistas, what the fuckers. I think those are the two that are working for most of you. I knew I got some flack for calling you what the fuck Aryans because there was an Aryan element to the greeting. So I'm not going to do that. Thank you for listening to my podcast. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to actually be in the hills of the barrio at the Cat Ranch in Los Angeles County at my home. I can now honestly say that I am working in my garage. I'll be in the garage. I have work to do in the garage. I am in my garage as we speak. It was no easy task getting here. There were a lot of a what the fucks along the way and a couple of, well, what the fuck? A couple of those. Don't want to hammer the theme too much. We got a good show today. We got a, a, a great guest. We got Nick Kroll from Human Giant. So I'm looking forward to talking to Nick. I hope it doesn't get too Jewy. You decide. I went out and bought equipment, and I'm in my garage, and I can't get over it. I hope you can make the adjustment with me. I hope my energy is the same. I hope we're all on the still, still on the same page, because now I am surrounded by everything I have ever had in my life that I've kept forever. What the fuck is that about? That's the first big question. I had to clean out my garage. Now, mind you, I have not lived at this house really for over a year, because I've been in New York. And I just stuck everything I owned in the garage. It was my office before I left, but then it just became a repository for divorce paperwork. Because when you get divorced, you got to do a lot of paperwork because you are told by alien lawyers that you must disclose everything over and over and over again. I have boxes and boxes of files. The one good thing about a divorce is you will never be more organized and more alone. So the second part of that, you could go either way with, but I am very organized, but everything was a mess in here. And I have to be honest with you folks. I have boxes and I shit you not. I have boxes labeled high school artwork. What do I think is going to happen with those high school artwork? That would be photographs I took in high school when I was a photographer. I was a professional photographer in high school. I thought I was professional in the sense that it was an artistic pursuit. So I never really aspired to be a documentary photographer, but I did some uh, arty photographs and now I've got them. I've still got them. They're right here next to me. I've got a box of cassette tapes. Remember those? Wasn't that long ago. Cassette tapes of my act. These are tapes that I would put in a little mini cassette recorder to record my sets in order to listen and learn from them. Have I ever listened to any of them? Probably not. Why am I saving them? What the fuck is that about? No idea. I have another box of high school writings. Those are important. Oh, I, I better hold on to those. Who knows what's going to happen? I have boxes of photographs of, well, photographs are a little more understandable, but I really don't know what I'm thinking. And it's not pure narcissism that I hold on to this stuff. I mean, there is an element that that I imagine, but I'm not holding on to it for posterity. I'm not holding on to it to guarantee my immortality. I don't think that much of myself. I, people often ask, well, what about when you die? Maybe uh, they'll be part of the Mark Marin collection. That's assuming there would be any need anywhere for a Mark Marin collection. I don't assume that will happen. 
I, I think that what would happen if I died, God forbid, is that my brother and my mother would come out here. They'd come in the garage and they go, I don't know what to do with these. My mother would say, I guess we should throw them out. I don't even know how you listen to these. How do you listen to these now? Does, do we have a player? And they would throw them out. I think the reason why I keep this stuff and the reason we keep our books, our pictures, our cassettes, our pieces of evidence that we existed and wrote things down or did things is, is because they're part of us. I, I just can't throw it out. I, and I look at some of these pictures. I used to, I don't take many photographs anymore, but I used to think that, uh, you know, there was a, there, there was a reason I didn't take photographs. And now I find as I get older, the photographs are the only real evidence that I had, uh, you know, a life in some respects. I have it in my memory, but the memory gets hazy. Time, your ability to understand things temporally gets hazy. And the photographs I can look at from these different phases of my life, at these different attempts at uh, achieving some sort of identity uh, in terms of whatever I was going through. You know, there are skinny tie photographs or photographs of me with a lot of buttons on. There are photographs of me with a leather jacket on. There are different haircuts, different hairstyles, different women in the photographs. And I think as my memory gets a little hazy, it needs to be, you know, jarred a little bit to remember some of the stuff I went through, to remember how I felt about certain people. I think that losing your memory is kind of a gift because what I generally lose first, I don't know about the rest of you, but the memories that seem to go first are the shitty ones. And I, I, maybe that's a male thing because I used to forget fights within hours of them happening. Uh, and my ex-wife would say, how, how can you not understand how this affected me? I'm like, it's over. It's done. I got it out of me. What I didn't realize is it was now in her. Whatever I got out of me or whatever you get out of you in, in fits of rage or anger or arguments, it is going directly into whoever you're directing that to. It is, they become a repository for your bile. And eventually they will not want to have that in them anymore. And it might take them a while to get out, but uh, they will eventually go away and remove it and go on with their life. A big what the fuck, though. Seriously. I'm surrounded by books, as I talked about on one of my past shows. I have record albums. I have CDs. I have photographs uh, on the wall that I bought. I have, I have computers that I don't use anymore. But this is understandable. I live in an old house. My house was built in 1924, and it sits on a hill, and it is not anchored for earthquakes. It has survived several earthquakes, but it's not anchored for earthquakes. It could all slide down the hill with all of my books, all of my pictures, and it could burn up in a fire. But you know what won't burn up in a fire? These old computers. What do we do with digital detritus, with garbage left over that has lots of information on it that cannot seem to be destroyed? I don't know what the hell to do with old computers. Because I feel like it's not that there's so much that there's important stuff on there, but there is, I think. There seems to be information. There's evidence of things. There's numbers that are important. I've got this old Toshiba sitting there. I don't know what the hell to do with it. I, I just, I don't, oh, I got to watch. I got to move my coffee. I dumped a, a bottle of soda on a Mac, a MacBook, and destroyed it. And I took the hard drive out. I have that hard drive with me. You know why? Because it's secret. It's top secret stuff. You know what I need other than a shredder? I think most of us have been convinced now that we need shredders. You got to have a shredder. Better have a shredder, a crisscross shredder, one that cross cuts it so people can't tape it back together and find out the numbers that are needed to steal your identity and open up accounts uh, in your name and buy houses and boats in the name of you destroying your credit. 
So what they need to manufacture is to create some sort of home and office smelter. What we need really is a bubbling urn of molten metal to throw our hard drives in, uh, to throw our, 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 di- our discs, our, our little um, you know, uh, clip drives or whatever the hell those things are called. We need smelters because that's the only way I'm going to feel safe. I will drag these hard drives around until I die, until I, I can actually, like that Terminator movie, just throw it into a, a molten vat, a vat of molten metal to know that it would be truly destroyed. But, you know, the high school artwork I'll keep. I'd, I'd like to have a smelter for the other stuff. It took a while to get out here. I, I think I'm going to make the transition pretty permanent. I went out and bought some equipment so I could do this. I, as I said, I hope it sounds good. It's all new to me. I found uh, I had to have my friend Jesse. Uh, some of you may know him, uh, Jesse Thorne uh, from uh, The Sound of Young America. Uh, he lives down the street, kind of, and he offered to help me uh, do some things, and he did. And I don't learn easily. I don't know that if I ever did. And I came up with this realization that I think that people like me and bullies, I'm not a bully, but I am not a nerd either. I I was never a uh, Dungeons and Dragons person. I was never a chess person. I was never a calculus person. Uh, I didn't do well in chemistry. Uh, have no idea how to program anything. Uh, I don't retain things that well. The way it was put best to me, and I think it's honest, is in my 30s, I decided to uh, to go back to college, to take a course at the new school, because I decided that I was older now, there are things I can understand now that I wouldn't have been able to understand. And the course I took was philosophy. I was going to take a philosophy class at the new school so I could expand my mind and engage, because I'm a, I'm a philosophical person. So I enroll in this class, and it is a philosophy class, but it's more like logic-oriented, which is more like mathematics. And I couldn't really dig it. And I would go, I at that time, I'd smoke a little pot, I'd walk over to the new school, I'd go sit there with the uh, the, the old Jewish ladies who were taking classes. And uh, because I was bored, I immediately became annoying to the teacher. I was cracking jokes. I was trying to to run the class or run it off track, as I did when I was in high school and earlier but not uh, really getting it. And one day I was in the elevator with the professor and we are going down and he turns to me and he says, why are you taking this class? And I said, oh, uh, well, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm getting something out of it. He goes, well, wh- what are you getting out of it? And I said, I don't know. I, my, my head seems to feel pretty full when I leave which in retrospect, a very stoned thing to say. And then this guy looks at me, and I don't really even remember this guy that well. And, and I, 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 I do, he didn't like me. But he looks at me and he says, you know, you can fill your head two ways. Either you can put new things in it, or you can heat up what's already in there so it expands. And that was the last day I went to class. Because that, philosophically to me, was the most profound thing I was going to get out of that class because I got no patience for math. I have no patience for classical logic. And what I'm getting at is that it dawned on me 
that I just don't learn things that easily. I don't learn new things that easily because I don't have patience. I, I get anxious. I get irritated. I want somebody to do it for me. I'd rather hire somebody to to work my BlackBerry. I'd rather, you know, try to pay somebody to come record this, which I'm doing by myself, which is, you know, like I feel like a child. I'm like, yay, look, no, look, no training wheels. And I realize that the difference between me and somebody who knows how to learn things is those people were able to focus. I, I imagine many of them have the same obsessive compulsive nature that I do, but they were able to focus. And the reason they were able to focus is primarily because they didn't necessarily fit in. Because I remember the nerds and the geeks and the smarties from, from high school, from junior high, from elementary school. They were always ostracized. They were always awkward. They were always bullied. And what made me realize what happens after that was just the fact that I, I couldn't use my phone one day. And I realized that some smarty, some geek, some nerd designed this BlackBerry. And it's too complicated for me to even read the manual because these were the kids that the bullies would say, hey, fuck you, nerd. Hey, four eyes. Hey, smelly. Hey, would your mom dress you? Those are dumb pants. And these kids would suck it up. They'd go home. They'd go in their room and they'd just hunker down and say, you're my only friend, calculus problem. You understand me and I understand you and I'm going to take as long as it's necessary for me to really understand you. You're my only friend's chess pieces. That's right, Mr. King. I'm going to learn how all of you work. You're my only best pal, computer program. And what was I doing? I was wandering around the halls trying to get people to like me and cracking jokes. And what were the jocks and the bullies doing? Being retarded. And they probably still are. And, you know, and who wins? I don't know how to work my phone. So I guess we know who won. My guest in my house... The first guest that I've had in my house, in my garage, is uh, Nick Kroll, and you may know him from Human Giant, you may know him from blah, 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 and the things he does on the thing, mm -hmm. the uh, funnier die things. Why don't you, I didn't uh, have time to do my homework because I was busy going to Radio Shack to make sure I could talk to you on the machine. Why don't you tell me your credits, Nick? Okay. Uh, let's, start, let's start at the beginning. Okay. Uh, Georgetown Players Improv Group. Wow. Um which was a pretty big. I was in the No Show my freshman year. Mm -hmm. I was. Uh, I got fourth place in the funniest act on campus my freshman year. Mm -hmm. Do you know who won that competition? No, I don't. Mike Berbiglia. Do you, if you want to go all the way back credits wise, we can go back to second grade. Second grade. Okay, let's start there. Okay. Um, I played the Pharaoh in Exodus from Egypt on a Passover play at the Jewish day school that I attended. Uh huh. Uh, I wore a gold lame outfit. Okay. Uh, I then went on to play uh, Ali Hakim, the swarthy Persian peddler, on two separate occasions. I'm not familiar with that work. Uh, what is that exactly? Have you seen the, the wonderful musical Oklahoma? Yes, I have. Okay. Well, Ali Hakim is the swarthy Persian peddler in Oklahoma. Okay. Uh, I played that twice. Um, once at my school and then once at my synagogue. Uh, the following year at my synagogue, I was... This is probably the Jewiest thing you can do. I was the rabbi in a synagogue production of Fiddler on the Roof. Wow. And how old were you? I was about 15 at that time. So you were like a, like a theater geek. Well, that's the thing is like, I don't think of myself as having been a theater geek. Uh, I mean, I did a couple plays and then in high school, 
I don't, I didn't really do, I did apply, I was just, I was smoking so much herb in high school that I didn't think to do plays. I did one play and then I was supposed to play Lucky Pierre in like a Our Town or Music Man or some bullshit. Yeah. And I quit. Um, and then when I got to college, I did the funny sect on campus and the whole idea was I was going to get on stage, be super, and I was going to be like, God, I thought I was going to be so nervous, but I'm so relaxed. And then I was going to have a balloon and a pin. I was going to pop the balloon and it would look like I was taking a piss in my pants. And I got drunk beforehand because I was, in fact, actually very nervous. <laughs> yeah. And showed up and yeah. uh, had no balloon or pin and was rummaging backstage through the garbage for uh, like uh, anything. I ended up on stage with a plastic bag like a sandwich bag filled with water <laughs> yeah. and a pen. Yeah. And I got on stage. I was like, God, I thought I was going to be so nervous, but I'm um, really relaxed. And then, and then I just had my hand looking like I was jerking myself off. And <laughs> trying to, trying to break the, uh, trying to break the plastic bag with the water, oh. uh, with a pen jamming it, looking like I was furiously masturbating. And did you succeed no. in breaking the bag? No, but I succeeded in doing my first truly alternative comedy bit in which I then just talked about how the bit was failing. And um, and that didn't really work. You went live with that? You were on stage and yeah. you said, what's happening is this. Yeah. yeah. I've had that moment myself. I was doing a production of Don't Drink the Water. Really? The Woody Allen play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did it in college. And uh, there's a scene where I'm the old man, I'm the old Jewish guy, I can't mm -hmm. remember his name, maybe Walter, mm -hmm. and there's a scene where a bomb comes in the window, and I'm supposed to pick it up and go, what's this? And another guy goes, it's a bomb, and mm -hmm. then I throw it to him, he throws it back on the out the window. Mm -hmm. So one night, the bomb comes through the window, slides off the stage into the audience, mm -hmm. and I'm standing there, and I didn't know what to do, so I said, what was that? And the other guy who has the other line goes, I don't know, I didn't see it. So... <laughs> So now I got to break the fourth wall and I just walk up to the stage and I go, just give me it, give me it. And the guy gives me the thing. I go, oh, it's a bomb. And then we continue And then you the continue on. How did it do? Did it kill? Of course. Well, you know, anytime you break the fourth wall, as much as they say not to do it, it's hilarious. People love it. They love it. Do you laugh during your act? I, I have at times, I, I find that what I do occasionally lately, if I'm feeling charming, mm -hmm. is I'll get right to that point where I'm about to laugh and try to hold that. Right. And then let them laugh. I do think that people like to see you have fun or you enjoying. You mean me in particular? You in particular, nobody I think else. that's right. <laughs> the only play I've ever done really was I did Woody Allen uh, one act called God, I think it was. Sure, I did that with, uh, was that the one with death and the guy? Yeah. You would be perfect for that role. Yeah. I cast a guy, we did a double bill, I was directing, I, we did, uh, uh, Death Knox is the one we did. We did God, uh -huh. which is the one with the Greek chorus. Yes, the, right. yes. That, I did that and then we did a second, we did a double bill with Death Knox, which is death and a guy that looks like you, in my mind. <laughs> which doesn't look anything like you. No, I, I think we're very different. We Are we? Are we not? We are of the same genetic... Our genetic strain is very close, I would I, say. I knew that to be true. And the first time I saw you, uh, I had that thing that usually happens with me, which is like, wow, this guy's really talented. I resent him. <laughs> There's probably like he, he looks like he's a very capable actor. He does characters, which I resent. Right. Because, and, and, and I think when I say resent, I, I should say I'm scared to do that. Right. So, therefore, I must not like him. Right. <laughs> but then... <laughs> very kind of you yeah but then we're uh you know like i of course we cannot deny the genetic jewish connection you can all, you can only fight yourself so much and i think the first time we actually had fun together was in uh, montreal because we yeah. were in a dressing room yeah and that wasn't long ago jim gaffigan another jew 
Very Jewish, Jim. But no, he won't discuss it at all. No, he's not he, going to come out with he it. He denies it. He's his own Jewishness denier. He. It's a shame because he would have been. He'd be such a great voice for the community. I think so. Yeah, yeah. It is. I do feel like I. It is weird. Weirdly, and I don't know if it's like my my little crew of friends. I don't actually. You know, you're like, oh, everyone in comedy is Jewish. I actually don't deal with that many Jews in comedy. It's not like it used to be. And we're trying to get it back. But, you know, these things take time. I almost prefer it to be the back to being not the other, but just not the dominant force. Well, I think what happened was at some point it was always the business was always relatively Jewish. Right. But there's always been uh, uh, black comedians and black acts mm-hmm. that play to the black community. And then there's been, uh, you know, the Jews. And there's always been a few Gentile comedians, mm-hmm. like, you know, great ones. You know, Bob Newhart was not Jewish. Right. Uh, and then there's probably some other ones. Carlin, George Carlin wasn't Jewish. George Carlin, not Jewish. But uh, he passed. Like, he felt like a Jew. Well, he was his own thing, really. Yeah. And, and, and of course, Bob Newhart hung out with a lot of Jews. I just think that what happened is as more people got involved with the business and the, the business broke up. Mm -hmm. A lot more people are involved. Right. A great many of them aren't Jews. A lot of the people that come out of Chicago. Irish Catholics. Yeah. All all Irish Catholics. Right. A lot of the improv people are not Jews. Yeah. That's the truth. And I think that's partly for me is like the stand-ups, they're just, or in the improv world, there are less Jews. And I don't know if it's because they can't collaborate or... Right. I, I don't I don't know. But I think it's helped a lot of things because I think that the language of comedy early on was almost a, a Jewish rhythm. Mm-hmm. And I think that things have have really changed. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been. Uh, and the whole the whole nature of comedy has changed. I mean, you come out of a discipline that I didn't come out of. I mean, I came out of stand up. Right. And you're like a, a theater improv guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I started doing stand up when I moved to the city in conjunction with the improv stuff because I just I wanted stage time. I want to be able to control being able to go out and do a fucking and set you yeah. know um and so i got a, I, I think a little taste of both but i didn't i've gotten into clubs a bit later yeah. than starting there and you you're funny I mean? stand-up thank you i i enjoy uh, i actually enjoy your work thank you and i saw you yesterday the only reason you're here is was we were i got a call from my management mm-hmm. uh saying that i i got to i'm doing a character on the the life of tim mm-hmm. which is your regular on yes and i got there and i was happy to see you yeah now let me ask you a question you know off uh, off uh topic when you do something like that let's say your management calls you up and says you're going to do this Mm -hmm. don't they usually call the next day to say how to go i feel like i'm i am weirdly now feeling the trappings of enough success where my i feel like my representation is beginning to ignore me does that make sense because they don't have to worry about you because you, you have money coming in right um they you know no i mean Yes, or it's a couple days later, but I am literally starting to... It's so weird because it's like, well, who fucking cares? You don't want them around half the time anyway, and then all of a sudden they don't call, and you're like, why didn't they call? Yeah, it becomes like a marriage. Yeah, well, I feel very much like representation is, and I feel like we talk about them like you talk about girlfriends and boyfriends and people you're interested in being like, well, you know, so-and-so's interested, and we'll see. I don't want to leave whatever, but I just feel like I'm being taken for granted here. Right, right, right. And you talk about it, at least in my group of friends, like we talk about it with the same like like verve that you talk about a relationship oh yeah of course it's it, it they're like it's it, it's either a relationship or your parents yeah uh either way now you seem the, i think another thing that bothers me about you huh? is that uh you seem oddly well adjusted for a jew and right. and for a comedic performer i know that you must be crazy on some level because you know you do crazy things on stage right but i would like right now i want to know the struggles of nick kroll he gets up in the morning he looks in the mirror and says 
It's easy. That's it? Yeah. See, I that, mean, I have my struggles, but I have had about an easier ride as you could have. Totally. You in- know what? I just started resenting you. Good. Again. You will. When you hear the full story. Yeah. Do you want to hear it or no? Because it's, you will, you will resent me for it. You will resent me for my, <laughs> I come from an intact family, parents still married, youngest of four, siblings all married with kids. I mean, that will probably be my, 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 the struggle is that I'm like, uh, probably not fully capable of love. And okay, I, I'm, I like you again now, but let's talk about your siblings for a minute. Yeah. Are they all successful? Uh, yeah, they all are. I mean, I'm, I'm both the black sheep and the golden boy. Does that make sense? No, I'm, I have that. Okay. I'm not sure I'm delivering on the golden boy completely. <laughs> well, but I don't believe that. I mean, like, I think, and who knows? I mean, like, my siblings all went to work with my father. I think they all tried other things. What's the family business? Uh, my dad created a company about 30 years ago, um, which is like corporate securities investigations, uh, risk mitigation is what the business is. Oh, my guy fell asleep in the middle of that. Yeah, what he, happens? It, you wouldn't, though. Actually, if I explain it, like he, he was a Wall Street's private eye during all the hostile takeovers in the 80s companies. On so he's a good sides. guy. I think so. He's like an Elliot Ness of, uh, of the financial institutions. Yes. And then like he, your dad's name gets mentioned and, and brokers go, oh, fuck. Yeah. That and guy. What he is working towards right now, he sold his company. What he's working towards right now is starting a new um, credit rating agency because of how the credit rating agencies failed to figure to out actually all the do shit. their job, yeah. and they instead sold uh, billions of dollars mm-hmm. worth of mortgages to people that couldn't afford to even do anything. Yeah, giving giving bundled mortgages and, AAA and ratings, victimizing them. Yeah. yeah, and then stealing like fuck teachers' pensions in the process. So he is working to. Uh, his his he sold his company. He's working towards creating a new credit rating. Okay, so now let's get back to uh, your easy ride, <laughs> Nick Kroll. Um, because you came out of nowhere. I remember the first time I saw you doing some, you know, borderline gay character. Mm-hmm. That you're, you're kind of close to gay. Do you get that a lot? I get. Uh, I'm on the verge. Yeah, it helps me with women. No, I'm sure. I, mm-hmm. I'm not like I would never insinuate that that's a bad thing. Because right. I I I envy also men. Who can let that go? Because I was on a train in New York and I saw this group of uh, gay men talking mm-hmm. and they were just, you know, professionally dressed. Right. But they were like, no, are you yeah, kidding? Yeah. That's fabulous. Super gay. And I'm like, oh my God, is that, do they have to do that? Is that, and then I that, realized, but, but I realized like it's easy to do and it's actually very relaxing. <laughs> and, and, and like, and then I realized like maybe that's the way we should all be talking. Right. But then some of us are like, no, you got to hide that shit or right. else, you know, people think we're gay. Right. But it's an easier way to go and you seem pretty comfortable with it. I am. You're not really gay. You're not. You're no, not but I have feminine qualities to me. I know. And they are lovely. Thank you. <laughs> I think that leisure breeds masculinity out of people. Like, I think like the richer you are, the more likely you're going to be gay or feminine. Because really? there's no struggle. Tell there's- that to uh, to uh, to uh, to Branson, right? From Virgin Airlines. Well, but Branson, it's true. But he's he's a self made man. Isn't Tell that he? to uh, Ted Turner. I, well, actually, that's not you know who knows, but that guy does behind. You know what? You may be right, but some of what you're talking about may not happen publicly. Sure, and, like but, you could make a lot of money and just have an S and M dungeon that right. you have boys come to every. But day. I think, but I think that it's the children of Ted Turner, the children of Richard Branson, the men are going to be more feminine queens queens are not even gay but just more leisure oriented and they're everything's easier right the leisure class i've met those kids i've met trust fund kids Mm -hmm. and they always are like i don't have to do anything right yeah where do you want to go let's go buy shoes exactly (laughs) 
<laughs> no. Well, we made this thing called Rich Dicks, and it is those guys, me and John Daly, and they are those just like super like whatever, and they are they are specifically the leisure like. M- Leisure has bred all of that out of them. But that's contemptible because it's also usually those guys or the next generation after that, if they even succeed in having another one, are the ones that squander the family fortune out of an inability to function Mm -hmm. in terms of creating or doing any work whatsoever. But they're very important to people that do because they usually squander the money on on arts and and projects that people like you and me talk them into doing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We need them. They are are our patrons. So back to the easy ride because I'm starting to like you again. Right. So I think that I have... Uh, and I am uh, I have had an easy ride you know financially it's been it's been my you know family did quite well and but I think that for me what it was was I didn't I discovered in college when I found improv that I've that's all I ever wanted to do. Comedy was the first thing that I ever wanted to put any effort in. So whereas a lot of my friends are those rich dicks who I grew up with, like I just I all of a sudden was like, what I just all I want to fucking do is make comedy, you know? So that's not going to make you like me more. Um, but no, I respect that. So my siblings are all married, happily so. Um, they are all uh, raising families. Um, I am very I'm 31. I don't see myself settling down anytime soon. Um, yeah, but a guy like you, you watch. Uh, you're going to have this new TV show on the air, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're going to buy a house. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you'll you'll be amazed at how that changes your um, desire to do that kind of thing. Because right. I think a lot of that, when you're ambitious and you're climbing and you, you're, you're on that that slope mm-hmm. up to success mm-hmm. that once you level off and you realize like this isn't going to go away right uh, you know I can afford to do things right that gives you a little more emotional space yes and that right now there's none of that emotional space right I fear that I inherently do not have that emotional space I don't inherently. know but, but you're, you're charming you can pretend right well that's the thing is I know I can pretend to be a loving husband whether I that's actually most, most husbands do <laughs> What do you think after a certain point that you could keep that shit up? <laughs> I don't know. Is that the great? Well, what about so you taking yourself out of that? Do you observe people who seem to be able to? No, I think what happens is loving becomes I think what happens once trust is built and a family is built is that the best that you can be is communicative and you can certainly be loving. And a lot of people do love their spouses. Mm-hmm. But I think there are issues of, of compromise and tolerance. Right. And uh, acceptance around this stuff because monogamy is a tough racket. Right. And and because of the sexual desire or because of. No, just all across the board. It's having another person that, you know, you love and Mm -hmm. that you you trust and and on some level share responsibilities with and and enjoy being with. Right. That just like anything else, it's like we're talking about with management or a best friend. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be able to get through the walls that you hit. Right. And you have to respect each other. Right. And, you know. And that's where, yeah, I, I, I feel like I, I, what 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 I fear is that I will never want to make a decision with someone else in mind. Yeah, well, that that is what can destroy things because you're self centered, mm-hmm. you're Jewish, mm-hmm. you're maybe not neurotic, but you could certainly be irritating. I yeah. think, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I imagine that Talk when my you, management <laughs> when you've broken up with, with women, they, yeah. it, what have the what have they usually said? See, I usually break up with women before. I can when I'm like two months in, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to marry this girl. I um, make it clear to them that I am incapable of long term commitment. And then like after like six months, like slowly, w- like casually and amicably walk away so they don't hate me. But I also never open up and enjoy the actual fruits of love. Maybe you are gay. Have you? I tried to. I try to stop, but I understand stuffing it in soft. 
Yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. No, I uh, I think life would be easier. My life would probably be easier being gay. Although those guys, they, they go through the same shit. Of course they do. And on top of that, they're gay. <laughs> so I don't that's know true. how much easier that is necessarily. And that's not being negative about being gay. But yeah. I think that the uh, the struggle socially that still exists yeah it's still there it's still of hard but they're they're they've uh, it's it, you know it's it's a lot different than it was and mm-hmm. and i think a lot of it has to do with that they have enclaves now almost like the sedum <laughs> right you know there are gay areas where right. if you're not gay you're like you know we, where are we we have to right. behave properly like chelsea is the bensonhurst of manhattan yeah or west hollywood is the you know is the gay bensonhurst of the, <laughs> i <laughs> i don't know if that that theory really holds up all right so how easy was it so all you want to do is comedy that's all yeah and you were doing your goofy characters yeah well i moved to new york and uh, doing improv and doing started doing stand-up and then started to do characters and and found that the truth is is i found it easier to uh know a character's point of view more than a, my own and yeah s- still feel like that it's easier to be like what does a gay latin guy think and know probably to a stereotypical idea of what a gay Latin guy thinks more than like, what does a 26 year old Jewish guy think? Yeah. Cause it's like, well, who fucking cares what a 26 year old Jewish guy? thinks? Well, I'm really putting a lot of, uh, uh I'm putting a lot of <laughs> my time and energy in hoping that people care what a 46 year old <laughs> Jewish guy thinks. So, yeah. so I, maybe, maybe as you get older, it becomes more. No. And, and I have slowly, I think doing stand up found the joy and my voice as a stand up. Um, but it oftentimes comes back to a uh, doing a character in my stand-up, figuring out how to do that within it. Right. But I, you know... All right, so let's talk about the easy ride again. Easy I, ride. I, I still am finding myself liking you and wanting to help you somehow. So you want... Okay, Emotional so, problems. Um, so you moved to New York. You're I moved doing to the New UCB York. thing. And then Aziz Ansari and you... Aziz, Aziz started doing his show. I, uh, I saw someone whose coattails I could grab onto. Right. Um, I held on tight. Um, which isn't easy because I find him difficult. Really, I don't know him, but I, I, I maybe I'm projecting, but I, I find that you know he seems like he has very sturdy boundaries and he's very ambitious mm-hmm. and he doesn't indulge me at all. He, just, he does not indulge people, um, and I think it's just we caught each other early, early on, and it was like you know, and I think it's like whoever you come up with, like you came up with your people who you like look around and you're like, all right, so we're all around the same time we're all the same age i wish i'd been more aware of that at the time and realized that it was a good thing to keep those relationships as opposed to like you know i'm doing my own thing right right because i'm in my garage right now i'm still doing my own thing (laughs) well but it's like at the same time you can't really count on anybody else to build your career for you or maintain it except for yourself see i never that's a whole word i didn't even use career i I was just (laughs) i want to be a stand-up comedy person i'm I'm a comedian and then everything will be delivered I had right. no idea that there were well, but when you when you were coming up, you could be a stand up and be handed things. I don't think that's the case anymore. No, you've got to hand yourself a lot, right? And you, and you have to. And I I think I came up already at a point where like nobody was giving you deals for being a funny stand up, right? You know. So okay, so you do Human Giant with Aziz. I mean, I wasn't a regular. I was a recurring friend of Aziz. I wasn't even in Human Giant. And then what happens? What's because uh, I don't want to keep you here too late. Um, I know you got to do a cartoon. Uh, I I started making my own stuff. You know videos we did a, th- a series for comedycentral.com and their first thing called i love the 30s which was a parody of i love the 80s so it's people in the 40s talking about the 30s and started to learn how to produce that stuff my favorite one of my favorite things that i've done 
till this day, to this day and I, I think forever is I with my buddy John Mulaney uh, who I think is literally the funniest dude on the planet Bar John Mulaney very funny very yeah. persistent very uh, you know calculated in his delivery yeah and uh, now a writer for SNL yeah. and and a good guy yeah uh, and a funny guy a, a guy who um, I know is used to be a lovely guy but he is he is definitely he's not going to just sort of like open up and be like hey like yeah. everybody in um, John is incredibly well behaved and like I think very much as a student of the history of comedy and, and appreciates it and knows very much, I think is very conscious of his, of, of not stepping on toes and, and not in an unpleasant way in a, in a, he is respectful of everyone. Um, and I think is literally the funniest dude of our generation. He will be, people will realize 10 years from now. Anyway, we do this thing called, Oh, hello two upper West side, middle-aged divorcees who are obsessed with Alan Alda. Um, and they're my, like one of the favorite things I've ever done. I think it was like we started doing it live on stage and, and we would improvise with it and we had written bits and we started shooting videos with it. And I just, I, I, I love it more than anything else. It's a, such a specific, it's not going to ever work for America. It's only for people from New York and people who right. are from LA who love Woody Allen. What it's was just, your break? My break? I did Cavemen. Oh, that's right. You were on the TV show. I was on the hit TV show, Cavemen. Based on the commercial. Yeah. You were on a TV show based on a commercial. Mm -hmm. You were one of the cavemen. I was one of the cavemen. But, but, and you were, you stood out. I stood out. As the... So I couldn't see my face. The Jewish caveman. As the, yeah, as the uh, sarcastic, ironic Jewish caveman. And that was what got you in with the biz. That was that was what moved me out here and I think gave me some sort of credibility as like, a, okay, we can put him on a TV show. And now let's talk about this because you do have to go do The Life of Tim. Yeah. And I, I think I had a good time doing that. Good. I, it's I, so fun. Yeah, I didn't realize there was that much improv. But the funny thing I had, uh, the experience I had with him, mm -hmm. I'd never met him before and, and we didn't really even talk before yeah. we went in. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing my thing and he kept laughing. Yeah, he laughs throughout it. Yeah. His, well, but he, it has now been integrated into his character that Tim is to deal with awkward situations laughs. So, but I think he was genuinely laughing. Yeah. Oh no, he, when he's laughing, he's laughing. Yeah. Um, he's not, he's not a false dude like that. Where did he come from? Now, you know, Advertising world. Interesting. Yeah, Steve Dildarian, creator of Life and Times Tim, it's coming out, second season, it starts in January and this season is a crazy group like, I'm so psyched this year because it was like we had our little cast of people and recurring people last year but like this year we have like you know you came in Bonnie Hunt Bob Odenkirk Alfred Molina Fort Will Forte Jennifer Coolidge uh, John Daly Andrew Daly uh, and Brett Gellman guys like that are recurring guys who were in a bunch of episodes it's really a f I mean Bob Einstein came in the other day and it's like you know for me I'm a regular I have like two scenes a show but I get to fuck around with people who I work with all the time and people who I've looked up to for a long time. That's interesting what can happen in the world of cartoons. I know. Yeah, no, I was uh, I was. And it's excited. like, I mean, I'm looking at your Dr. Katz photo up there. Um, yeah. And it has that same vibe, I think. You yeah, know? no, I, I enjoyed the few episodes I saw, but I certainly got a new respect for it yesterday given how much improv is done and how sort of you know, his sensibility about when a scene is done and when they have yeah. gotten what they need to They do get. like five or six takes and they're like, and it's him and Luke, who's a, a writer who's also cuts all the audio. That's why I think the show works is because you've got a writer editing it right. who knows where jokes are. So now when I saw you, we talked about this new project you're doing for FX that mm -hmm. I had heard about and we, what's it called? It's called The League. The League. And I and we talked about Steve Renazizi yes. as being a guy's guy. He's a guy. And I saw him last night at the comedy store. Oh, he he's, did. A, he's a sweet guy. And yeah. He's, 
and he's uh, he couldn't be more thrilled with uh, what's happening yeah. at the show. Yeah. What is the the show, and when does it uh, premiere? The league is um, created by a guy Jeff uh, Schaefer and his wife Jackie Jeff, who's a guy who's been working on Curb with Larry for years. Um, and so it's got that it's going to be a Curb style show, all very loosely scripted. Um, it's about a bunch of guys who are in a fantasy football league together. I hadn't been in a league until this year. We're all in one together. And fantasy football, 30 million people are doing it this year. It's f- huge. I don't, I've don't. i never gravitated towards anything. Neither have I. Anything. Period. But, right, <laughs> no, and nothing good for me. Right. Nothing like sports. But you, what you Sports were, isn't good for you. I mean, it's, But you were a football fan? I was a fan of football. I okay, like watching so, okay, games. So okay. I understood the vocabulary I knew this, or the grammar I knew, I didn't know the vocabulary of like who the current players are, which I've learned. It's so easy to do over two weeks. And a fucking blast. Um, and I think fantasy football is about guys. Basically, the basic idea of fantasy football is it's guys figuring out different ways to call each other gay on the Internet. Um, and, you know, it's just the way that 30 year old guys interact with each other. They, you know, they talk shit. They fuck around. They make fun of each other's wives that they don't get laid, that they masturbate, all that shit. Um, and I think that the loose improvisational style of the show lends itself to this particular format and medium of fantasy football. That's awesome. So when did you tell me when it's going to? It's go coming on? out. We premiere October 29th, Thursday. So soon. So you've got how many have you put in the can? We've been block shooting. Um, so we have like sort of two or three episodes done, but block it's like shooting. Meaning we'll shoot like we'll have like a bar that we use in three episodes. So we'll shoot all of the scenes at the bar over a day or two. Okay. And then we'll go to my house and, and shoot. And then they'll just break them up and use them whenever yeah. they can. Well, they they have it all marked exactly six when. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. And then we, we premiered Thursdays, 1030 on FX. Uh, we're going to follow Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Okay. Awesome. Well, Nick Kroll, I'm going to let you go. I'm actually be, I've been sort of maternal in this. Uh, You're very kind. In this episode. Like, I don't want Nick to be late. And I'm, I'm going to hope that when I push this button that I don't lose everything. And this first interview done in the garage at the Cat Ranch overlooking the barrio of Highland Park in Los, Los Angeles went well with, uh, with the uh, very talented and and uh, I, not annoying at all, really. Very pleasant. And, you're and you're I, a kind man. And I don't resent him. Nick Kroll. Thank you. Coming out here was no easy task. I get very anxious. I get very panicky. Not about flying, but about flying with a cat. I don't know when the fuck I became that guy. I don't really know why I'm the guy sitting on a plane with my cat worrying about my cat. Now, the biggest real worry about the cat is my cats are wild. They're crazy. They're truly feral at heart. And to get them in a box is no easy task. The monkey is easier than most. And once I get them in the box, if I can get them in the box, literally to the day I am traveling, I'm like, I don't know if the cat's leaving with me. It all depends on whether or not I can get him in the box. And I obsess for days. I have to I have to focus like a ninja. I have to sit there and get my mind in place to put my cat in the box. Like literally, it's an exercise of it's like uh, Zen almost. I'm like, there can be no doubt in your mind, Mark, that you will get monkey in the box. And I have to set the box up the night before so he doesn't suspect anything. And then I I have to act like nothing's about to happen. And I have to say, hey, what's up? And I have to pick the cat up and put him on my lap, which isn't easy. And then in one swift movement, I have to pick him up and drop him into the box nicely. But it has to be swift. 
and there is no second guessing or else it'll all fail. So I literally go through these exercises, these Zen warrior exercises of how am I going to get monkey into the fucking box? So I get him in the box, but that's just phase one. Okay. My cat, what he likes to do when he's freaked out is immediately shit. And the last time I got him in a cage to bring him out to New York, right when I got him in the car, in the cage, he shit in the cage. And that's difficult because then you got to take the cat out or try to clean up the shit without him getting out, which is messy. It's just a big smelly mess. So once I get him in the box, I'm not even afraid of him shitting yet because I've got to take him out of the box to walk him through security because for whatever fucking reason, they can't just, I I don't know, maybe the x-ray machine's not good for a cat, but it's got to be better than flying the poor thing in cargo. And I don't drug my cat because I was told that if you drug a cat, it's unable to metabolize properly. So it's not good for the cat. So I don't drug the cat, but I got to take this fucking cat out when I get to security. And I know that too, because I've been through that before. I've been through the panic. I've made such a scene about having to take my cat out of the box that I might as well have been a crazy cat lady. So I know that I'm going to have to take him out. And my biggest fear around that is, what if he gets out of my hands? Then what happens? Then my life becomes like a children's movie, just a montage of me running through airport uh, environments, running around a baggage claim. Monkey, oh, that darn cat. Just me running. And then, you know, cut to like my cat, like running, and then cut to me like running. That, that's a nightmare, a nightmare. But what I've learned, though, is a lot of times you take them out and they just want to get back in because they don't know where the fuck they are. So that worked out okay. But then once I'm on the plane, the shit fear happens. What if he shits in the box on the plane? Then I'm that guy. I'm the guy that ruins the flight for everyone because I brought a cat on that can't control itself. That's the worry. But you know what? It didn't happen. He made it, held his water, held his poop, and uh, we made it to LA, LA okay. So now I'm here at the cat ranch. I got Monkey here. I got Boomer here. I got LaFonda here. LaFonda, who's Monkey's sister, is apparently not talking to her brother. So he's uncomfortable. I feel bad. I'm anthropomorphizing a lot. I'm thinking it was so much happier. But it's going to be okay. Now all I have to worry about here is whether or not all these stinking raccoons and these dumb possums will eat all of uh, Boomer's food. And somebody seems to be moving shit around at night. The ladder fell last night, and there was an exercise ball on the deck that is now way down uh, near the bottom of the hill. Either it's the raccoons or a very bored, weird stalker that is not really trying to scare me, but just trying to puzzle me. I don't assume that it's somebody coming over and go, let's just put the ladder on the ground tonight. And then tomorrow... We'll move that exercise ball to the bottom of the hill. That'll really fuck him up. I'm not suspecting that. That's our show. I want to thank Nick Kroll. I want to remind everybody that if you go to the UCB Theater, Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, Friday, October 16th at 8 p.m., you will see a live taping of What the Fuck with Mark Marin. Uh, with several guests, you might want to call to uh, or, or go online and make reservations at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles, California. Where's my cat? Maybe he'll talk to me. Boomer! Come here, Boomer! Boomer! Boomer!